our theme today is joy. The emotion that is evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Thank you, Webster's Dictionary. That's the definition of joy. And uh, that is represented by the the pink candle this morning. Um, Typically, we tend to differentiate between joy and happiness. Um, Happiness tends to, we think about it anyways, to be more dependent upon the circumstances you find yourself in. It's really easy to be happy if your circumstances are pleasant. Would you agree? Okay. If you just received a pay raise, you would be happy. A promotion, you might be happy. Depends on what's included with that promotion. I've worked for the government for way too long. Um, If your vehicle was just repossessed, it would probably be a little bit harder to be happy. Maybe. Perhaps not. (laughs) Things used to be so simple and black and white back when I was younger. Not so much anymore. Um, Biblical joy tends to be more equated with the last part of that definition that I read. Um, The emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what you desire. Joy is longer lasting than happiness. Um, Joy is is long-sighted, not necessarily immediate. We tend to be, uh, especially in our society today, we really tend to be uh, an instantaneous society. We don't like to defer our gratification. We want what we want, and we want it already. It's not even fast enough to say, I want it now. I want it already. I want it already to be in my possession. Joy can sustain us during periods of darkness and sadness where happiness really is very fleeting. For our scripture today, we're going to be back in the upper room, uh, this time in John's Gospel, chapter 15. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, and I really have to say there isn't really a better example of a dark time or a time of somberness or uncertainty in the Gospels. This last night, if we stick to tradition, that would be Thursday, which on the church calendar, for those more liturgical type folks, they tend to pay a very close attention to the church calendar. What is the Thursday before Good Friday called? Anybody know? No, it's called Maundy Thursday, which is a, a, a Latin word that really indicates the somberness, the darkness. Uh, in fact, a lot of churches will have, on that night, they will have a tenebrae service. Tenebrae meaning darkness, right? And there was a phrase that, that uh, I believe it was Martin Luther who, who really uh, emphasized this phrase. I could be wrong. I'm sure somebody will look it up and tell me. Post-tenebras lux. 
After darkness, light. The night before Jesus' death was the darkest period in the lives of the disciples. Think about the setting in the room. Think about, if we, we pop back to the beginning of the upper room, where Jesus tells the disciples, go into town, find this guy carrying a jar of water, follow him to his house, that's not creepy, and tell him that I want to celebrate Passover in his upper room. And he'll invite you in and we'll do it. And that's what happened. They get there and the house is prepared and they prepare the meal and everything is... Passover has become a joyous time of celebration for the Jews. It is no longer about slavery and captivity. It is a a position of joy and, and happiness and celebration that they are no longer slaves, but they are now in their kingdom. And then sitting there at the table, Jesus changes the meal. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out. And then he tells them that one of them is going to betray him to the Jewish authorities. The mood has changed. Happiness is gone. But Jesus wants them to know joy. So if you would, let's all stand. I'm going to attempt to read. My reader is is somewhat malfunctioning this morning. Old age. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, This is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, though we recognize this time of year as a time of celebration according to our calendar, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who struggle with depression, with sadness, with grief, for various reasons. Father, I pray as we look at this message, as we look at this passage and we we look at the the disciples and, and what Jesus shared, that we would find that our joy can be full. Father, help us to understand your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So the first thing I want you to notice is the first two words 
in John 15, verse 1. I am. It is that construction again, that, that Greek construction, ego, emi. I am that I am. The same thing that God used to identify himself to Moses from the burning bush. I am. This time, he says, I am the true vine. If we were to take this passage alone by itself, that would be an interesting metaphor. But, context, 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 I like to expand the picture a little bit. Psalm 80, verse 8, the psalmist says that Israel is the vine brought forth out of Egypt in relation to the Exodus. Well, let's see. What are we celebrating in the upper room? The Passover, which was the event that occurred right before the Exodus, right? So I think Jesus knows what he's doing when he says that I am the true vine. That word true, the Greek word that is used there is is the word for genuine, for authentic. Uh, In today's vernacular, he's the real deal. He is the vine. Israel was a type. Israel was a metaphor. The nation of Israel. Okay, now I've told you before that there are a lot of people who have this view that all of the nation of Israel, just by virtue of being the fact that they are Israel, will be saved. I have a problem with that. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, period. The majority of the nation of Israel has rejected Christ. DNA doesn't matter. Jesus says that he is Israel. He is the true Israel, the vine brought forth out of Egypt. The father is the vine dresser. How many of y'all have ever grown grapes? (laughs) Muscadines. Okay, that's close. They're similar, though they tend to grow a lot more wild than grapes do. There's a... There's a principle of studying the Scripture where we figure out who wrote it and their context, right? Where we need to know something about the the background of the person who's writing and the background of the people that are receiving the Word. Uh, Case in point, the the whole idea of the 23rd Psalm, unless you're a Middle Eastern shepherd, right? The imagery in the 23rd Psalm, you're going to interpret according to what you know about shepherds and sheep. Well, there, there was a book written that was a, uh, uh, a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm or, or the 23rd Psalm through the eyes of a shepherd, something along those lines. I can't remember the title of the book right now. That the first time I ever heard the interpretation of the 23rd Psalm from a Middle Eastern shepherd, my mind was completely blown. Because that's where I started learning things about the difference between a shepherd in the United States and a shepherd in the Middle East. The shepherd in the United States herds the sheep by chasing them. The shepherd in the Middle East sits out in the field and talks to the sheep so that when he gets up and walks around, the sheep follow him. There's a difference, right? Well, the same thing can apply here to the vine dresser and the vine. Because if you don't grow grapes, some of the concepts dealing with a vineyard 
and a vine dresser are foreign to us, right? What does the vine dresser do? Okay, why? To grow more fruit. The purpose of the vine dresser, the job of the vine dresser is to produce as much fruit as possible from the vine. Tending, trimming, pruning, harvesting. Those are the work of the vine dresser. And Jesus says that God the Father is the vine dresser. He is the vine. Now I have to be honest with you. The next verse, verse 2, is a toughie. It's complicated. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. I will talk about the pruning minute, uh, the pruning aspect here in just a minute. Jesus is the vine, and any branch that's in him that doesn't bear fruit is removed. It's taken away. Right? If the branch is in, is in the vine, and the person is the branch, and Jesus is the vine, then that means the person is in Christ. Then the person is saved, right? Right? If, if yeah. Okay. What does it mean that he takes it away? He takes the branch away. A lot of people, a lot of people tell you that this indicates that these people have their salvation removed. No. Not, I agree. But that's what a surface reading sounds like. Because if the branch is in Christ but doesn't, doesn't produce fruit, then the vine dresser takes the branch away. It's no longer in Christ. It's gone. However, that doesn't fit the picture of salvation in the rest of the New Testament. So we have to figure out what Jesus means. Two different ways to understand this if we understand that salvation is something that a person cannot lose. One of them is that Jesus is talking about people who are in Christ but who produce either no fruit or little enough fruit or their works are corrupted enough that they are removed from the body, not necessarily removed from their eternal salvation. Think Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the whole church is coming together. They're donating things to people who have need. Ananias and Sapphira sell their property and decide to tell the disciples that this is all the money we got for it. And they keep some of the money back. Right? And Peter makes it very clear that the issue is that they're lying, not that they're holding money back. And what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They die. Their, their branch is removed. Okay? It doesn't mean that their salvation is removed. Scripture doesn't say anything at all about that. Okay? But... That takes just a little bit more exegetical acrobatics than I'm comfortable with. Okay? The verb, the Greek verb that is translated in almost every English translation 
is the verb arai. A-I-R-A-I. Okay? In almost every English translation, it is translated as takes away or some permutation of that. However, in John's Gospel and the rest of the New Testament, that verb is translated as lift up, not taken away. There are places where it is translated takes away, and it makes more sense that way. However, thinking about a vine dresser again, one of the steps a successful vine dresser takes in growing their grapevine is to take the lower branches that are in the shadow of the upper branches and to lift them up and tie them to a trellis so that the leaves are exposed to the sun because it is the process of photosynthesis. Plants making food, that's the one, yeah. It is that process that the plants, the leaves, the chlorophyll, collect the sunlight, cause the plant to make sugar, cause the sugar and the vine to be produced in the fruit, cause the fruit to grow, causes a multitude of grapes. So the first thing that the vine dresser does to a branch that's in the shadows, a branch that's not growing fruit, he lifts it up. Contextually, that makes a lot more sense. Um, by the way, there is one English translation that uses the, the words lifts up instead of takes away. It's a relatively new translation. It's called the Passion Translation. Okay? I had not heard of it until yesterday. Um, the New King James, if that happens to be what you're reading, actually has a note in the margin that says that that can also be translated as lifts up. Okay? Uh, the New English Translation, the English Standard Version, also have a note to that effect. This is one of the cases where translation sometimes plays second fiddle to tradition. The first person who translated it into the English as takes away was John Wycliffe back in the 1400s. People are a lot more comfortable with tradition than we like to give them credit for. Just saying so, if we read this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser lifts up. Why? So it can produce fruit. And every branch that does produce fruit, which would be the branches that have already been lifted up, right? He does what? He prunes them. Anybody who knows anything about plants understands pruning. Right? If you're a tomato grower, once your tomato vine starts doing its thing and you get those little little buds that show up in between the branches of the tomato vine or whatever, what do you do with those? You pinch them off. Why? It redirects the nutrients that would have gone to that into the fruit that's elsewhere. Right? So, Anybody who understands anything about plants understands pruning. Anyone who's ever tried to remove an azalea bush by cutting the branches off but not pulling the roots out understands the effect of pruning. Because it grows even bigger. I did this. 
<laughs> Pruning is where you take unhealthy parts, maybe dead branches or branches that are diseased or branches that are dying, or sometimes even healthy parts, like those little suckers on a tomato vine, right? I mean, that's, that's a viable bud that could turn into a tomato. And you remove them to direct the energy of the plant into growing bigger, better, more plentiful fruit. If you're a branch on a vine that's growing down and around, right? And the vine dresser just all of a sudden comes over and picks it up. That's going to put strain on that branch, right? That's going to cause some discomfort, if you will, to the branch. And when you go out to the vine with a pair of pruning shears and you start cutting pieces off, that's not exactly pleasant either. But it causes more fruit to grow. So Jesus just told these 11 men that the process of being his disciple is one that is going to involve discomfort and change and sometimes pain. The things that we go through cause us to grow. Now, I've had this discussion with my students on base. You ever go through a situation where you make zero mistakes? It could be a small process, okay? It could be a new recipe that you're trying. You follow the recipe to the letter, and everything works the way it's supposed to. You ever had that happen? Okay? Let me ask you something. Did you necessarily learn anything about that recipe? No, you just you follow the checklist. Check, 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 check. Everything works. Everybody loved it. Woo-hoo. Right? How do we learn? We learn by not putting the chili powder in the chili. I don't often get to say things that make her blush. <laughs> However, the chili tasted really good. But there was an ingredient missing. My students, when they're sitting in class, if they program everything according to the instruction sheet correctly, and they just they follow the instructions, right? I can get a 12-year-old to do that. What are they going to learn? Nothing. Nothing. It's when they screw something up, and it causes a little bit of discomfort, like the instructor coming over and telling them, well, that's a really stupid thing to do, right? That they're going to learn. Learning is not a process that's pleasant. It's the after effect of learning that is pleasant. Knowing your stuff, knowing that you can rely on that information, growing fruit, being fruitful in the Christian life is pleasant. Getting fruitful in the Christian life, not so much. That's what Jesus says. Then he goes on and he tells them that They have been cleansed by the word that he's spoken to them. Remember, at this point, Judas is no longer part of the group. Judas is left to go betray Jesus. So he's talking to the eleven. 
They've already been cleansed. They've already believed. They have already placed their faith and trust in Christ. Even though he hasn't died yet, they already have salvation. They're clean. Then he says, abide in me. What does that mean? You hear it all the time. That's a nice churchy word, right? But we don't use the word abide in common English anymore. What does the word abide mean? It means to dwell someplace, to live somewhere. Live in me and allow me to live in you. Now, this is where he makes one of those kind of duh statements to the disciples. And I remind myself that Peter is sitting there, right? Branches that have been severed from the vine do not live. They don't produce fruit. You cut a piece of tomato plant off. What's it going to do? It's going to wither and die, right? You cut a piece of grapevine off, it's going to wither and die. There is only so much it can pull from itself without having that vine. The vine provides what the branch requires in order to be sustained. The branch that is sustained by the vine is the branch that grows fruit. The branches that try to live apart from the vine wither and die. Think about Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats. Think about Jesus talking about those who come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all the right stuff? Those are branches that are trying to do it apart from the vine. They might be doing the right stuff, but they're doing it on their own. They don't have that connection to the vine. And so the vine dresser gathers them and throws them into the fire. If we live in Christ and he lives in us, Jesus makes another statement. You know, I've I've told you all before that the reason I go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so I can't skip verses that I don't like. I really don't like this verse. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I don't like that verse. Because I know what people do with that verse. That right there is the root of the name it and claim it word of faith movement. See, right there, Jesus says, you can ask whatever you want. Except, he puts a necessary condition on it. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Okay? This isn't just a case of claiming faith in Christ or memorizing scripture or doing the right stuff. This is, Jesus says, if you live in me. What makes up our life? Everything that we do, right? How much of your life is lived in Christ? Not in faith in Christ. Because I would wager a guess that most of us live our day-to-day life with that idea of our faith in Christ, at least informing some of our decisions. But I'm talking about permeated by the Word of God. I'm talking about every step of everything that you do informed by the Holy Spirit in your life. Never once spinning off into your own 
pursuit of selfishness. Never once spinning off into that place of, I'm going to do this my way, God. Not doing this, okay, God, I have surrendered my entire life to you, except this little place over here. This is mine. I don't want you to touch this pet sin. I like it. The people that Jesus is talking to are people that have spent three years walking with him, talking with him, living side to side with him. Every day for three years. Remember what he just told Peter he was going to do? Before the sun has cleared the horizon, you're going to have denied me three times. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. This is, this is an idea of a life in Christ that is so permeated by the word of God and so Christ to be so prevalent in their life that it literally exudes from every pore in the person's body. That's the person, when, when they walk up to you, or when you walk away from a conversation, that's the person that, that it strikes you, that's a godly person. That's somebody who walks with Christ. If Christ permeates us that thoroughly, what will be the things that we ask? What he wants. This is not a blank check where as long as we say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, God is somehow obligated to do what we have asked. This is an indication that we must, must live in Christ. It's not a perfect life. How many of you have sinned this morning? You drove here, right? You can't have done that without sinning. That poor FedEx driver did it to me this morning. I was five minutes outside of my driveway when the doorbell goes off. We got this cool smart doorbell makes my phone ring. Yeah, the phone rang. As I'm in the truck driving, I answer the phone and nobody's there. So while I'm sitting at the red light, no traffic behind me, on a side street, not blocking anybody, I pull up the application so I can see who just rang my doorbell. And it was FedEx guy. Who stopped, dropped the package, rang the doorbell, and walked away. So guess what I had to do? I had to take the roundabout way to get back to the house and pick up the package instead of leaving me sitting on the doorstep where somebody can steal it. Yeah. See, we're going to sin. The flesh is still within us. So Jesus isn't saying we have to be sinlessly perfect, but he's saying we have to be in a life that is informed by his word. We have to know what to do when we do that. We have to respond correctly when that happens. He's not telling me I can pray for a new car and it's going to show up on my doorstep. 
the FedEx box wasn't that big. <laughs> it's in the back seat of the truck. Definitely was not that big. If we keep going through this passage, Jesus says that, that this is what glorifies God, that we bear fruit. God gets the glory by the fruit that we bear, by the change in our lives, the works that we do, the things that, that God has prepared beforehand for us to do from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. The reason we're saved is because God has a job for us, right? This is what brings Him glory. And as, as God has loved Jesus, as the Father has lo loved the Son, the Son has loved His disciples. That's the place for us to live, to set up camp. That's the, that ought to be where we want to be. God, how does the Father love the Son? Eternally, perfectly. How does the Son love the disciples? Eternally and perfectly. Now, I didn't read any further, but it's important for us to, to note that in verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment. In, in verse 9, he says, uh, sorry, in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment. What are we supposed to do? Whoa, what? Love one another as I have loved you. How do we show this? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now everybody says that Jesus is talking about he's going to lay down his life for his friends. And yes, that's a part of it. But remember, that word love that we see in the New Testament so often means to wish, to desire the best for the other person, no matter what. The personal cost to ourselves. That's what he's saying. Is we ought to, if we obey his commands, if we live in his command, then we're going to want the best and seek the best. Because because I can want a lot of stuff, right? I want to be independent will without having to go work tomorrow. That ain't gonna happen. But to seek the best for my brothers and sisters in Christ, to seek the best for the stranger I meet on the road, no matter the personal cost. That's what brings God glory. Is that love coming out of our lives? That's the fruit. As the Father has loved the Son, the Son loves His disciples. And He tells us to love one another. That's where we need to live. As we walk in Jesus' teaching, as we abide in Him and He abides in us, we demonstrate his love for the Son, God's love for the Son, Jesus' love for the disciples, as we love one another. We ought to follow in that example. And this brings us back to joy. The whole purpose, Jesus says, for telling the disciples this, 
The whole purpose is that his joy may be in them. His joy, his emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. His joy. So that his joy may be in them. What is Jesus about to face? Not just death. Not not just torture and death. Not just humiliation and torture and death. He is about to experience the punishment for the sins of his people. The forsaking, the, the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him in our place. And Jesus says, I'm sharing all this with you so that my joy can be perfect, complete, full. And my joy can be in you. What's going to sustain the disciples through those three days? As Jesus is dead, I would love to say that faith sustained them. Faith did not sustain them. Fear sustained them. Because what happened to the disciples the minute Jesus got arrested? They scattered with the exception of John and Peter. Peter stuck around outside during the trial until he could deny Jesus. John, we assume, is the one who was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus looked at his mother and said, Behold your son. And John took Mary on as his charge. But after Jesus died, where did the disciples go? They went and hid. They went back to the upper room. Right here where Jesus is talking to them. And what did they do? They shut and locked the doors because they were afraid. Jesus said, I'm teaching you this because I want your joy to be full. Because joy can sustain us through the worst possible outcome. See, I don't know that any of us will ever face a period as dark as the disciples did. I hope not. I mean, I really, I have seen some pretty dark times. Okay? I think I am probably the only person who can say that they have been in an active combat zone, in this room anyways, they have been in an active combat zone as missiles flew overhead. Which was really awesome. Because they were our missiles. (laughs) However, the other side had missiles coming back and I didn't know when that was going to happen. I have faced death of loved ones, of friends, of family. I have faced financial uncertainty. I have faced plenty of darkness. I don't know that I could ever take face in the darkness that the disciples faced. As Jesus hung on a cross and died. I don't know that I could bear that. 
But I know that I couldn't bear that without that certainty of possessing my deepest desire. And what is my deepest desire? If I live in Christ and Christ lives in me, what is my deepest desire but to stand face to face with the Father and hear Him say, well done. In in 2003, around the beginning of April, end of March, beginning of April, as the Tomahawk missiles flew overhead into Iraq, And I sat alone in that little communications van in Kuwait. And I pulled out my chem warfare mask. I checked my canister. Made sure I had my auto injectors. I put everything back. And I sat down on my laptop to write an email. To let Steph know, I don't know what's going to happen. I had joy. I didn't have happiness. (laughs) There was that momentary, that's really cool with the tomahawks flying over. But it wasn't happiness. I was afraid. But I still had joy. Because I knew what was going to happen. We can find ourselves in some dark times, some dire circumstances, even facing the worst possible outcomes in our life. But our joy can be full. It can be complete. It can be secure. Because our joy is not dependent upon the circumstances that we are in. Our joy is in Him. 